Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and this is a special episode, and I'm having a conversation with one of my favorite writers, Tim Urban, who's a writer, illustrator, and co-founder of Wait But Why, which is a website that is really hard to describe. you got to go to it if you've never been to it before. His posts have millions of views and tons of fans from you know rank-and-file folks like me all the way up to people like Elon Musk, and he uses illustration and really pithy writing to talk about some of the most important things going on in society and for us personally. I think he wrote this post that kind of changed the way I think about time when he talked about just how much time we have left, you know, on average uh, on this planet and how much time we spend with our parents versus doing other things. And it honestly made me visit my mom more at home. But he wrote this book recently called uh, What's Our Problem, uh, which is a book right in the wheelhouse of the listeners of this podcast. It's about political polarization, why we're divided as a society, how we think about issues, and how we can have better conversations and so show more humanity to each other. It's basically a book for political eclectics. And so, Tim, welcome to this podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, Tim, let's start with, uh, you have this framework that you lay out at the beginning of the book about you know basically saying, we spend so much time as a society about what people think but not enough about how people think. And you talk about two different types of thinking, high-rung thinking and low-rung thinking. Do you mind just laying out for our audience like how you think about those two categories? Yeah, I mean, it's like natural for us to be concerned with how someone, you know, not just what their ideas are or their beliefs or their conclusions, but how they arrived at them in some areas. Like you're on an airplane and you have an issue and someone next to you says, you know, here, take this pill, right? Because you're having a, you're having trouble. You're not going to just say, okay, yes, you know, uh, because you're in my, because you you share some of my other beliefs. Um, you're going to want to know what, why, who are you? How do you know that I should take the pill? Like, what's your background? Are you are you a doctor? Right? You know. So we 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 actually care about how that conclusion of theirs that I should take this pill um, was developed. What's the reasoning underneath that? What's the background? And then there's just other areas where where that that very obvious kind of method of, of thinking just just evaporates um, and it just doesn't switch on. Uh, and so that's, you know, politics is what I focus on as one of these um, areas where so many of us are just, you know, what you're concerned with is, did this person agree with me? Did they have the right political views? And if they do, you know, you trust them. Uh, you trust what they say about politics. And, and if they don't, then, you know, you don't trust anything they say. And um, it's just this obsession with what, where people stand, um, which is, which is only is, you know, it's only part of the deal here. So I like to think of uh, rather than just like the left, right, center, horizontal political axis, which is a what you think axis. Why don't we also have a vertical axis and make the whole thing a square? Hmm. And the vertical axis, I call it the ladder. And, it, you know, there's the high rungs of the ladder and the low rungs. And it can kind of be defined as um, there's different ways of thinking in our in our in one head. Uh, all of us have, you know, very rational, very you know, logical thinking that would that would care about truth um, and would be willing to revise our views and be aware that we might be wrong and just um, <clears throat> and it's kind of again it's kind of like the 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 logical way to think if something else isn't going on. But then there's this other part of our brain I call it the primitive mind, which is kind of this this software, this ancient software that's in our brain that is just not concerned with truth, is concerned with survival in a small tribe a long time ago. And it doesn't know that it hasn't updated. And when that part of our brain is doing the thinking, it's going to, you know, it's going to identify with our ideas, it's going to be really hostile to anyone who challenges them. And it's going to be much more concerned with 
confirming what you already believe uh, than, than finding the truth. It's not going to be open to changing its mind. Um, and so, uh, you know, again, if you're on the airplane and the passenger next to you says, here, take this pill, if, uh, you're going to be thinking with your that higher mind, that, that, that part, you're going to be on the high rungs just naturally because it's just how you would be. If, but when politics... You know, sometimes it's religion, sometimes it's nutrition, sometimes it's how we raise our kids. You know, there's certain topics that really wake up that primitive part of our brain and it can kind of take over our thinking. And so that's when we slip down to the low rungs. You know, it's a spectrum. Uh, when, when we're thinking more with our higher mind, you know, we're on the high rungs and when we're thinking more with the primitive mind, we're on the low rungs. And um, so this is a how you think axis. And uh, and I think we should be asking when someone is uh, someone has a stance politically, um, it should, right next to that, uh, information should be, well, wh where are they vertically here? Are they someone who seems humble and open to changing their minds? Are they, are they concerned with evidence? Are they, um, you know, did it, or are they, do they seem super tribal, uh, and attached to their ideas? And, you know, there's nothing you could say to make them say, oh, maybe I was wrong. <laughs> and that means that this person's thinking from the low rungs and we shouldn't take what they're saying. They're, they're what you think is seriously, because it's not really emerging from, from evidence. And so you have certain, subparts or types of people within the high-rung thinking and low-rung thinking, or even just frameworks that any one person could use. So like at the highest level of high-rung thinking, you basically say, we think scientifically, uh, which is we sort of gather evidence, we sort of characterize that evidence, we form hypotheses, we test those hypotheses. Then there's the sports fan, the attorney, which is low-rung thinking, like essentially advocating for a position because that's the role that you play. And then the zealot, and so, but it seems like what you're saying isn't that you're a, like a zealot is just always a zealot or a scientist is always a scientist. I think there are multiple times in this book where you say nobody, even Neil deGrasse Tyson doesn't think like a scientist all every minute of every single day. What do you think are the conditions? Cause this is what your book is essentially about is like, how do we create the conditions for more high rung thinking when you meet people who are the enlightened is there anything that stands out to you just a bit, either the way they were raised or the environment that they're in or, you know, epiphanies that they have, or even just genetically like predispositions that they may have? Yeah, I'm sure we're all genetically inclined. You know, some of us are, have maybe an easier time naturally of, of thinking from the high rungs or low rungs. But I think, like you said, I think, I don't think that it's like, you know, which one are you? It's that you can think like a scientist, like a sports fan. Sports fan, I mean, you know, you you you're rooting for a certain outcome, your certain thing. You know, you're not quite objective, but you you still care about the integrity of the game. You still care about truth more than anything in the end. But a scientist, you know, if you're thinking like a purely like a scientist, you're not attached to any outcome. You're just testing hypotheses, looking for truth. And then the attorney, you know, it's more like you know, you're you're on a side now officially. And there's not actually you'll have all this evidence. You'll 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 seem like you're doing all this thinking, but there's nothing that can make you change sides. So you're not actually, right. and then the zealot is, you're not even thinking, you know, you know, you're right. Like the sky is blue. There's not even need to come up with a case because it's just so obvious. And anyone who disagrees with you is an awful person. I, I think we all have been in all, in, in all four of these mindsets. And some of us right. can be, be, you know, like, you know, really great at thinking like a scientist in certain areas of our thinking. And then some other topic comes up and we drop down the ladder. Um, so I think right. it is a lot of bit, you know, I think there's definitely how you're raised. I think if you're raised by, parents that are good at thinking from the high runs, they teach you, you know, the concept of humility and that like changing your mind is good. And that like, we're often wrong. And that like 
people who, uh, you know, it's it, it's not wise or good to assume that people who disagree with you are just bad or stupid without actually, you know. And, and so I think that obviously helps. Um, your environment, we have a, our environment has a lot of effect on us. Uh, but it's just a personal quest, I think. It's a, it's a growth mm-hmm. You know, we talk about growth, right? A lot. And well, I, I like to think of growth metrics. And so, one metric for me is, uh, you know, it's never that we're going to be purely on the high rungs, but can I that the ratio of my of the time I'm thinking on that from the high rungs to the low rungs that ratio? Can I improve that ratio over time? That's a good. Right. That's what a good like you know north star for me for intellectual growth. Well, so it's a lonely place, I think. The high rung. You know, you talk about the the two types of environments. The metaphors you use are. An idea lab, which is an environment for collaborative, high-rung thinking, where debate and dialectic are welcome. It's kind of like a neural network is kind of the metaphor you use there. That's where we want to be. That's what we're trying to make this company, the branch and the Lost Debate podcast. Uh, the echo chamber, which is where we spend most of our time, and actually I have a political podcast I do separate from this, which is on the Midas network, and I love them, but it is very much an echo chamber. I go on there and it's I actually think some of the headlines you plucked for your book might have been from that network. And it's what we call collaborative low-rung thinking, where like, for example, last week I got on and said, you know what? DeSantis has a point about Disney and the power that we give it. And the comment section just blew up uh, of our own audience. Like there's like a bit of uh, audience capture. And you you basically compare the echo chamber colorfully to the Mongol army, which I want you to explain to our audience. But I, the reason why I say it's, it's it's lonely is to use your sports metaphor. Like I I would hope to be somewhere between sports fan and scientific thinker most of the time. I wouldn't say I'm there as much as I would like to be. But the sports fandom is lonely because a good example is I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. And if I stood up amongst my Buffalo Bills fans and said, you know what, the Music City Miracle, that wasn't a forward lateral. That was actually a like a legit uh, you know, backwards pass or whatever. I don't even know what the terminology is. I, I would be no, not welcome anymore amongst Bills fans. Uh, so, and that's like politically the same, right? Getting up and being like, look, which we've said on this podcast, I think the Trump indictment, even though I'm a lifelong Democrat, I think the Trump indictment has some problems. When I get up and say that to other Democrats, you get ostracized. Yeah. So you can take all these concepts, right? Like this ladder where I, I'm, I was talking about, you know, individuals where we can be in our thinking but then yeah we 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 form groups and actually there's a culture there's an intellectual culture there's a culture for everything you know every group if you're if you're with your spouse or with your friends or in the classroom or at your company um you you know we're not even always aware of how much uh you know so what what is culture culture is kind of the unwritten rules about how we do things here right how we talk how we how we how we work together how we interact and so you can have culture that applies to a lot of parts of human interaction, but one of them is intellect, you know, our intellectual culture and ideal uh, and an ideal lab is simply like a, a group anywhere from two people up to thousands, um, where the, the, the prevailing intellectual culture is, is high rung, meaning that it is, you get socially rewarded for high rung thinking. If you say, I don't know, and you, um, and you, and you, you're curious and, and, and humble and you change your mind, that makes people respect you more. You know, you're, 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 you seem smart. Um, if you're going around spouting dogma and you can't really back it up, um, you get really offended when people disagree with you, you, you lose respect in an idea lab. So the culture mm-hmm. is incentivizing high rung behavior and, and, and it actually, you know, makes everyone smarter because it kind of 
keeps everyone honest and it and you know and because everyone's saying what they think in an ideal lab it's cool to you know you know people don't identify with their ideas so you throw an idea out and it's cool to disagree with it because you know let's see let's let, it's interesting let's let's see, oh, you, you you know two people disagree awesome let's figure out who's right right it's it's fun so of mm -hmm. course you know ideas flow and the whole group can kind of collaborate thinking we can get you know you can kind of create the super intelligence so it's great for all these reasons it's good for the individuals and it has this emergent property of super intelligence but that's again that goes against a lot of our nature when it comes to political topics we often form the low-rung intellectual culture which is just a survival tactic from a long time ago where a group of people will you know bind together through the uh, sh through shared agreement on certain sacred ideas and so when 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 a group is you know, when one of our, you know, the group identity is that we all believe that these politics are correct or whatever, that's a whole different thing. And now you're going to have a culture where the whole culture flips. It's really cool in that culture to express conviction about the sacred ideas and talk about how stupid yeah. and wrong and bad and evil the people who disagree with those <laughs> ideas are. And if you in that group say maybe we're wrong about something or maybe there's some more nuance here, instead of people saying, oh, interesting, like you just experienced in your comment section, people will be this incredible negative reaction. It's like you're a tumor in this larger body that needs to be cut out. So there, instead of, you know, disagreement and difference uh, and variety and diversity of ideas being the, the, the fundamental thing, it's conformity. It's all about conformity. I use the Mongol army just because they were such an example of strict, rigid, internal conformity. You know, any anyone who deserted from their 10-person group, the whole group got killed. Any 10-person right. group who together deserted, the whole 100 person group that they were a part of all got killed. So it's just this extreme, you know, it's the ultimate example of a kind of rigid enforcement of conformity. And, uh, and we, we do that intellectually and the emergent property there is not super intelligence. It's actually really stupid. Uh, it's, and the emergent property is just brute power and strength. You know, you don't want an echo chamber after you, you're going to, you know, it's, it, they dehumanize people who disagree and, you know, they'll try to ruin you. And so it's this lockstep conformity, um, that again was helpful to survival a long time ago, but this for them, yeah, doesn't make much it sense for today. them. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have such a simple and thoughtful description of the political case for liberalism, and I don't mean liberalism in terms of Democrat versus Republican, but in the sense of freedom of speech, constitutional protections against government intrusion. You know, this sort of constitutional bedrock principles we have, and then you talk about the norms that go along with that. And essentially you argue that our system of liberalism in this country and constitutional democracy allows for a, a sense of a, a freedom and entrepreneurialism that have come together in such a powerful way. And if you're comparing the US to say China, for example, um, or even worse, like the Mongol society, that was sort of rule by power rule by force, where essentially you're, you go up to somebody else and essentially the what what governs whether you get what you want is whether you're more powerful than somebody else. Whereas now in a, in a constitutional democracy and one uh, preface on a certain kind of freedom that we have at our best, the, the sort of question is, what can you do for me? So you almost like make a, a case. This is not, I wouldn't say like the main premise of your book, but along the way you make a case for a, a strong culture of liberal constitutional democracy. Uh, I'm curious as to why you felt that was necessary, because I loved it, but like what you were guarding against in your audience, like why you felt they needed to know that. Well, so yeah, a lowercase l liberal democracy um, is this interesting, you know, because if you think about the extremes of governance, you have anarchy, and then you have like totalitarian government, you know, pure freedom, 
in an anarchy, everyone could do whatever they want um, or whatever you want. Maybe I'm sure anarchists would say that's not anarchy, but you know, the concept yeah. where anyone <laughs> can do whatever they want um, all the way to, to a to totalitarian government, the most, the, the most uh, oppressive dictator of all time when no one has any freedom, right? So 0% freedom to a hundred. And the liberal democracy basically says, we're going to create like an 80% freedom environment. So there's going to be the constitution and the rules and the laws, and but they're all, they're going to be limited. They're going to create a big wide fence. And within there, people are totally free. The wide fence is made up of, again, basic laws, the harm principle, you can't harm others, uh, property rights and, and various things that, you know, that, 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 that the courts would rule on. And otherwise though, free, free markets, free speech. And, um, and it's this amazing system. But the, the thing is, um, actually, if you, if you think about how you, you know, if you live in a liberal democracy and you look at actually how you're running, you know, how you're running your life and living your days and your career, it's not, it's governed by something else, not just, not only the laws, which it is, but also there's this, there's this set of, there's this set of civic norms, um, that all of us are following most of us without realizing it, you know, um, you know, this kind of social etiquette or this, um, you know, the, the things that you can get your reputation hurt by. Uh, and that's really important. That's, that's the second piece of the puzzle for to run well, you actually need both liberal norms and liberal uh, laws. And that's like two pieces of a puzzle that create like, now you're living in what I would call the liberal games, you know, you're under those mm -hmm. rules, as opposed to what you were referring to the power games, which is just, you know, whoever has more power can make the rules. And that's it. Um, and the reason I felt like it was important is because I see that that second puzzle piece, liberal norms is kind of, um, we're in a, we're in a, an era when people, there's a lot of violating of those liberal, liberal norms. And it's almost like a lot of people have forgotten why they're important. And so that leads to the breakdown. Um, you know, so the, the idea with like a liberal democracy is, um, you know, we talked about echo chambers and idea labs. So what the liberal democracy says, right, you could have a totalitarian dictator that says it's going to be, everyone has to live in an idea lab, no echo chamber culture, right? But you can't do that in the U.S. because that's too much power for the government. So instead, um, the, the, and, and likewise, lots of more, more often a, uh, a dictator would say, you were, you were all in my echo chamber now. You know, you can't criticize the government. You can't criticize yeah. our, our national religion, whatever. The, the U.S. says, First Amendment basically means the government cannot enforce any echo chamber, right? Can't arrest, arrest anyone for saying it's free speech. You, anyone can say whatever they want. That is officially the rule. Now, within there, you can choose to really go with the liberal spirit and form groups, where, idea labs, right, that have idea lab culture, where really free, free speech is truly free, even socially. Or you can kind of give up the beauty of that, of the liberal democracy, and form groups that are echo chambers. And basically, you're living inside of a, a non-First Amendment dictatorship socially now. So maybe the government can't arrest you, but if your friends were all going to stop talking to you if you say the wrong thing, you might as well not have free speech. So the, what, what the U.S. says is basically a place like the U.S. or any liberal democracy, there will be some. You can, you're free to form social echo chambers, free to form social idea labs, but the country as a whole will remain an idea lab and that there will be, you know, it'll be a place where, where have diversity of viewpoints and you can't encroach on anyone else. And so the that other half of the puzzle, the liberal norms are supposed to, you know, when people want to be in an idea lab or it's a special place that's supposed to be an idea lab, like a university or a company that's supposed to have a variety of views or whatever. The liberal norm there says you have to stand up for those liberal values, the liberal spirit, you know, and actually fend off the in inevitable encroachment of, of echo chamber cultures that want to take over larger spaces. And what I've been seeing a lot of is that not 
doing very well. There's a lot of echo chamber yeah, movements it's not happening enough, yeah. that are scaring everyone right now into silence, and we're losing a lot of the benefits of the liberal democracy. Yeah, and so let's talk about a little bit about why that's the case, because you know what you're describing in Idealab is what most people would say they both want, and probably what they would describe. They would probably think they're in one, uh, but I think there you have such a, a thoughtful description of some of the moves that happen. You call it the Gollum immune system, which we won't go into the Gollum metaphor right now, but you go through these sort of series of fallacies and moves that happen in an echo chamber. And you talk about information filtering, which is pretty obvious, like a an echo chamber is going to in kind of self-police or you know ensure sort of cohesion by choosing what information people listen to or watch or read and obviously like you look at dictatorships they're really good at this there's social pressure which we talked about i think our audience will be very familiar with that like the pressure to conform to what everybody else thinks other you know lest you be ostracized uh you talk about information twisting um and so uh, I'm going to pause at a couple of these that I think are going to be not as obvious to our audience, and this is one of them, where you talk about this this phenomenon of people coming, the way they treat anecdotes, and how you will so subtly tilt the meaning of an anecdote based on whether it serves your interests or not. Do you mind talking a little bit about that move? In ideal culture, people call each other out on logical fallacies. We all do it even without realizing it. You know, If you're trying to prove your point, you'll do a logical fallacy of some kind. Um, but echo chamber, idea lab culture tries to call people out on it and keep, you know, keep things honest. Echo chamber culture is the opposite where it will use an endless string of logical fallacies to try to con con convince itself to have the people in it can continue to convince themselves that they are a hundred percent right about everything. Even when there's a strong argument against them, they will use some logical fallacy. They'll straw man it. So they'll make it, they'll, they'll, they'll twist it into something that seems weaker than it really is. And then they'll say, oh, that's what the other side thinks. Obviously that's wrong. So we must be right. Right. Or, or the Mott and Bailey fallacy, which is, you know, the idea that, um, you'll, you'll have this art, not very strong argument that's easily attacked, but you'll, when, when you are attacked, you'll quickly reframe it as a steel man version of it, a version of it. That's actually not really what you're saying, but is very hard to argue against. That sounds really good. And pretend that that's what, you know, anyone who disagrees with us must disagree with that. And that's not true. Yeah. You mind giving the example you talked about the Iraq war just to make that one clear for the audience? Yeah. Like, so, so in th this stems from there's a medieval fortress type, you know, you have this like open, you know, profitable land, this farmable land that's flat, you know, maybe surrounded by a little moat or whatever. And, uh, but it's easily attackable, hard to defend. Um, and then there's a little hill and on top of it's a castle. And so when, when, when the Bailey, which is the flat land is attacked, people would run up to the castle, the Mott, um, run up, run up the hill and they'd go into the castle where they, you know, they, they'd fire arrows down and the attackers would have to retreat. And so you see these people with arguments, they, they, um, they'll say something like, you know, so I use the Iraq war words, you know, the, the actual argument was we want to basically start a pretty random war with a dictator that we don't like and, and to, you know, remove him from power. Um, that's kind of hard to defend. It's like, well, you know, we're going to have Americans go and die and we're going to go and you know, spend trillions of dollars for what? So instead of saying, you know, actually arguing that point, what the Bush administration and people who defended the Iraq war would often say is something like, um, you know, we're just trying to protect Americans from weapons of mass destruction. Well, that's the mock position, right? And so now you say, so you're framing it as anyone who disagrees with us, you know, must not believe in protecting Americans from weapons of mass destruction, or they would say stuff like, you know, Bush has a hilarious quote where he says something like, 
you know, I'm sorry, but I, the people who argue against the Iraq war, I, 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 they don't think that people, brown people, people who look different than us can self-govern. I reject that. You know, I think that, <laughs> yeah. I think that brown people can self-govern. That's a hilarious, you know, you're going up and basically saying, pretending that that's the thing that they're arguing against. So it's, it's the opposite of the straw man. The straw man says, takes the thing that's, that the, 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 the challenger's argument and reframes it in a much weaker way to make it seem like that's their argument, that Martin Bailey takes your own argument and strengthens it and pretends that you're actually doing this much harder to defend. So, yeah. so anyway, back to your question about trends and anecdotes, you'll notice this in the media. You know, we used to have media that broadcast to the whole country and it was pretty much concerned with truth. And there was 30 minutes a day of pretty kind of, you know, neutral news coverage. Uh, today we have 24 hours a day of basically news entertainment directed towards one political tribe. And so it's very not right. very not neutral. It's very much, you know, catering to an echo chamber. Uh, and it's going to always be making the case while we are so right and they're so wrong. It doesn't matter what the actual facts are. Um, and so one of the things you'll see news headlines do, and people in general um, who are in this mindset, is when there's a trend that doesn't look so good for their side, right, some kind of statistic or whatever, they'll frame it as that's a freak anecdote. Of course, there's always freak anecdotes, right? There's always freak instances. There's, there's you know, hateful people doing things. It's not a trend. And then likewise, when there's an anecdote that happens that, that, that fits their narrative, they'll say, see, this is what we're talking. This is the kind of thing that's happening. They'll frame that as a trend. So you see a ton of this. And it's just a little, you know, it's a little sleight of hand of, um, you know, the, all the good stories for us are trends. They're, they're, they're part of a larger story. And all the bad stories, for us, they're freak anecdotes, right? And this is a, a quick way to, to, to take a, an in, inconvenient information and just so, make it so that it doesn't matter. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's, once you start noticing that, you're, you notice it everywhere. Yeah. And there's this other, by the way, and you talk about crime statistics, which is notorious for this, the way people talk about crime in New York. I have a, my co-host Ricky and I have done a hundred rounds on this before because, you know, I get the sense that even though I have, I have a lot to say about my, uh, our local politicians here in New York and how they view crime and I have a lot of critiques. When I watch the national news coverage of it, we're a city of 10 million people. You could point in any given day to any crime and make it seem like it's you know endemic. You exactly. know, a person gets pushed in front of a subway and be like, I don't want to ride the subway anymore. I hear this from people who come visit me. And I'm like, look, we'll be okay. You come with me to the subway, we'll be fine. But they have this perception of New York, like it's like 1970s era, like, you know, fend for yourself, like escape from New York style. And I'm like, look, like, and it's hard to talk about because I, I don't also buy the totally like progressive view of policing either. So there's like this weird spot. Uh, that we're in here. And you, you see this all over the place. And I agree with you. This is the one that you're going to see everywhere. There's another one that I want to talk about here, though, that I had not heard this metaphor before, but I thought it was so powerful. You want to talk about the inoculation effect? Yeah. So, I mean, what is an actual a drug inoculation do is that it exposes you to a weaker version of the flu, say, or one a virus. And then you learn to develop defenses against that weaker version so that then you are suddenly defended against all versions, even stronger ones. And this can happen with ideas. So if you are, uh, and I didn't invent this, this is a, this is a concept uh, that I came across, but um, if you, um, so you're in a certain tribe, right? You know, you're one of the, you're in the red or the blue tribe. Um, and the other side does have a pretty strong argument, you know, maybe that you, it's not so convenient. 
what'll happen is someone will straw man that argument and and make it seem much they'll, they'll either pick the worst version of it you know the person who's saying it the worst or they'll actually just invent kind of a, a much weaker version they'll frame it in a way that sounds way worse than it really is and that will get retweeted a trillion times and 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 broadcast from their media and so then people start to say okay anyone who's arguing you know i don't know whatever it is against climate change against vaccines whatever it is that's what they must think. That's what they all think, right? And and now you know for sure that that's a bad argument. And now when any argue or any argument against it, you're kind of inoculated. You're kind of almost immune to changing your mind there because you can just quickly, you know, you've built up all of this disdain for that whole argument, all of this kind of eye-rolling dismissal of that whole position based on the really weak argument that's been passed around so that you don't even, when a stronger one comes in, you just immediately gets dismissed before any kind of consideration. So you can inoculate a whole group of people to changing their mind by using, you know, passing straw men around. Yeah, I want to I want to give you two examples, one from each side of the political spectrum on this that I find fascinating. Uh, one is the libs of TikTok, TikTok channel, which I think is really funny at times. Like, so well done to whoever does that. Uh, but at the same time, it creates in the, in the Internet age that we're in right now, you could find ridiculous examples of any type of opinion. And they're very good at curating like this, like absurd version of the left Sometimes it's representative, so I don't want to dismiss it out of hand, but a lot of times it's just crazy. And I have a lot of friends in my life, you know, I grew up in Staten Island, who look at that and think that's the world I live in as a Democrat. I'm like, that these are the people I hang out with and these are the views I espouse. So if there's even a cousin of something they say, so they, you know, whether like there's an argument about implicit bias or something where I have like a more nuanced view than the libs of TikTok, they won't hear anything I'm saying because they've now been exposed to that. So I think that's the left-wing version of this that I've seen. The or the the right wing version of the leftist caricature, the the version on the right left the other way I see is Brexit, which I talk about this. I run this communications training uh, for Democrats, and I talk about the take back control messaging, uh, and and I talk about Brexit as it relates to immigration debates in the U.S. and how. Democrats and liberals, you know, both like the the Labor Party in Britain and in the U.S., the Democrats are conditioned to see certain arguments, whether it's the the Remain campaign in the U.K. or you know pro like pretty like aggressive immigration in the U.S. to only think about their opponents in terms of the bigots uh, in their opponents because they've been exposed to some relentless arguments to, to show like the only reason why you would want more restrictive immigration or the only reason why you'd want Brexit is if you're a racist. And that makes them kind of blind to the people who are like, you know what? I have other reasons to, to want Brexit. Maybe I don't like, I don't want to hand over our sovereignty to the EU, or maybe I'm just afraid of change. Maybe I just love, you know, Britain, I'm, 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 a, I'm a, a patriot and I just like our country and I want us to remain sovereign. Uh, and the same is true of immigration where people are like, look, like I'm just a little bit afraid of any change and I need you to talk to me a little bit differently. I don't have anything against people who look differently than me. So I see this in both ways. Like I, I, I do see how powerful this can be and how it can lead to some of the more dangerous you know, effects in our society and make people miss huge parts of their opponent's political coalition. Well, and in the political environment we're in now, what you often see is the same on even on a single issue. You have the blue team is has totally caricaturized the red the red argument, 
by picking the worst versions of it and the most extreme, or even again, twisting it into something that no one said, but it's just that that's what they decided everyone has said. And likewise, then you'll see the the red team has done the same thing. Like you, like your example with libs of, you know, of TikTok, it's like the most intense teachers who say, I'm going to indoctrinate your children. I'm going to, they're right. mine now. Right. right? <laughs> so that, so that, 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 but then on the other <laughs> side, you'll have, but on the same, on the other side of that exact same issue, you'll have something like a total caricature of like what has been called the don't say gay bill and the specific part of it that was rejected in court, which is the part that infringes upon higher education, academic freedom, which you can't do. That, you know, must be that anyone who's pushing back against what's going on in schools or whatever is a, an anti-LGBTQ bigot, you know, is the same kind of person right. who was against gay marriage and there are these, you know, authoritarian bigots. So basically you have, this side thinks that anyone who disagrees with them on, on these issues is an authoritarian bigot. And this side thinks anyone who disagrees with them on these issues is basically a groomer, right? And so you have, you know, transphobe, groomer, transphobe, groomer, you have this just screaming back and forth at each other when neither one is re remotely capturing the, the actual nuanced topic and what's really going on and that it, it is complicated and that there's a lot to discuss here, that discussion gets totally drowned out and just stomped on by this kind of scary tribal fight. And, you know, it's hard to, you know, you, most of us are kind of in one of those worlds or the other, at least, you know, socially. We, and your own side is the scary one. And to, to even suggest nuance when you, and there's this screaming, you know, unnuanced bat, you know, battle of false narratives going on it's tempting to just keep your mouth shut or go speak, talk about it in private. And that's why this really important discussion that we could be advancing forward and getting wiser about just is totally silenced. And uh, it's not good. Yeah, the cost of nuance sometimes is very high, you know, depending on what group you're in, right? Like to be like, you know what? Like, let's pause for a second. Should we be indicting a former president based on the charges that we see in New York. Like to, to say that in a cer in certain company is to invite absolute scorn. It's a surefire sign that you are in the presence of echo chamber culture when simply bringing up nuance, bringing up, you know, questions, asking questions, or even let, you know, God forbid, playing devil's advocate is like, right. you know, you get socially ostracized, you get socially, you know, destroyed for doing this. Um, you know, you're in the presence of echo chamber culture and you're in a, it might as well be going into a church, you know, or an evangelical church and saying, I don't think that we have any evidence of God. You know, it, you are doing that. And, and, and it's crazy when you notice it, you say, I'm in a religious environment here. This has become kind of these normally sane people right. who like nuance and other topics have gone totally mad on this one topic because the primitive minds have taken over and they band together with each other and they create this scary environment. Yeah, and you talk about a couple of trends. One you alluded to already, which is the movement from broadcast to narrowcast. So the nightly news, et cetera. And you talk about how for all of its flaws, it had a certain magnetic pull for accuracy and um, I, we, we don't like the word centrism, but like, like depolarized kind of content or more wide appeal. And there are flaws to that, for sure. There were gatekeepers who had all sorts of problems, et cetera. Uh, but now we're in the era of the narrow cast, where there's, you know, you have these niche audiences. Sometimes they're politically uh, niche, and sometimes they're, they can even be eclectic niches. Like there's certain little populist colonies all across the internet that I wouldn't necessarily call right or left, but have their own subcultures. But you also talk about how that's happening at the same time that we're having geographic sorting. Um, you want to talk a little bit about like you, you had this interesting part of your book where you basically played around with numbers around preferences and then layered that in with the data around how we're sorting 
across society where you basically were saying like people tend to be want to be around people who are like them. Sometimes it's cultural, sometimes it's political. We could debate about which of the two they are, but they're basically a proxy for each other. And if you just have a slight preference to be around people who are like you, it could have powerful effects. Yeah, it's this, it's this really, um, I think it emerges from a paper called Dynamic Models of Segregation. It's, it's really interesting where, and this goes for racial segregation in neighborhoods or uh, ethnic or religious or political. If you, if, if, if there's, you know, I don't know, just say you take 10,000 people and you have to, each have to pick their homes and in, in this little neighborhood. And if people, if, if oh, the only thing people want is for one third of their direct neighbors to be like them, right? So, so just say there's the green people and the yellow people and the, the green people, you know, everyone likes diversity, right? They, 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 they don't want homogeneity they, they they prefer to be in a diverse neighborhood but they still want you know the, a green person wants at least a third of their direct neighbors to also be green it's actually very hard to do that because to keep everyone happy you actually end up with basically a big green block and a big yellow block now if you go up to 50 percent, which means that again these are people who are down with half their neighbors being different from them they just don't want to be in the minority in any in, in their neighborhood they, they, they would like at least 50 percent or more people to be like them immediately you basically have a block of green and a block of yellow. There's no other way to do it without making some people unhappy to the point where they move and quickly, you know. And so, you know, if there's any preference, you know, if, if, if there's any metric that people are selecting for when they're moving, uh, you know, for neighbors, that almost always is just going to lead to completely segregated neighborhoods. So you can apply this to, um, to what's happened with politics. I mean, the, the boomers were the first generation to be really mobile. Like after college, many of them started moving around and moving out of their home city, you know, because before you just kind of used, if you, if you, if you stay wherever you were born, you're going to end up with diversity usually because just, you know, no one's moving. So as people change and their kids change their mind, you know, you end up with kind of inherent diversity. As soon as you can move and choose the neighborhood that you're going to start seeing this. And one of the big areas that started to happen was you know, in the in the fifties and sixties, if someone was trying to select a people like them culturally, you know, I want progressive people or conservative people, that still might have meant a totally politically diverse neighborhood because Republicans and Democrats both contained lots of progressives and lots of conservatives. There was no way to say, oh, the, you shop at this grocery store, you must be a Democrat. Does, didn't really work like that. <laughs> so therefore, inherently, yeah. even if people are selecting for people like them, they were still going to end up with all kinds of you know po political diversity. Then the parties realigned, and you had all the conservatives go to the Republicans, and the progressives go to the Democrats, and there, and, and you kind of, you know, with the, especially with the media, you know, changing the way it did, you end up with these macro cultures where the kind of person that likes this kind of food and watches this kind of TV show and uses these kinds of curse words and, you know, gets married at this kind of age, <laughs> they are very likely to be this party or that party. And so even if people, you know, some people are selecting, I want to be around Democrats, but most people are just trying to be around people in neighborhoods that, that feel familiar that, in, and then kind of had an un, unintended consequence of creating very blue and very red neighborhoods and communities and towns and cities. I mean, obviously big cities, you're going to have more diversity. And so then you have your, all the kids going to school together and all of their parents have the same politics, you know? So then the kids make their lifelong friends there and they're, they're you know, and you go to church group, you go to a restaurant um, and everyone there is likely to have the, you know, the same politics. And that very quickly uh, turns into echo chamber, physical echo chambers. And there's all this other data that when you have kind of diversity, basically 
begets more diversity. You know, when, when there's a diverse environment, it, it it's friendly to more diversity. But when you start to get more homogenous, it becomes inherently more hostile to any. So if you have, you know, 60, 40 of, of some kind of a belief or another, it's going to be fine to be either one. But once you get to 80, 20, those 20 are going to start getting really bullied by the 80. So they're going to either go quiet or move. And before you know it, it's 95, five. And now those five are definitely keeping their mouth shut because there's a ton of hostility to diversity. So, you know, when, when groups of like-minded people get together, there's, ev- there's data, um, these studies that have been done where people, all their views become more extreme and more one-sided. So you can see how this quickly turns into um, more extreme views. And then you combine that the geographical echo chambers with the fact that now these whole groups of people are also all watching the same news, which is very much training them on this one sided view of the world. And you can see how that gets pretty ugly. You know, so it's, it's basically digitally uh, separated and physically separated now. And, and that, that creates an environment for what you call the scariest of all human emotions, which is disgust. So when you, when you take, that physical separation, that digital separation, and all the fallacies that you describe, the way that people talk about each other, the way they present the views of other people, the way they present the motives of one another. One thing we also didn't talk about, which is the way that they present the threat of the other group, which is something we don't have enough time to talk about, but you talk about the incentive to play up the threat of the other side as much as possible because it creates in-group cohesion. You put that all together and it creates an environment for disgust. Talk a little bit about why you call that the scariest of all human emotions and why you think that we have a unique risk here. So like there's a few emotions that are universal kind of like pre-programmed emotions. So you don't, if you go to any foreign country, smile and everyone knows what that means. No one's going to be like, wow, that person hates me because in that country, smiling is bad. Everyone, you know, happiness, (laughs) anger, um, sadness, these are universal. They're part of our DNA. And so we express them the same everywhere. Disgust is one of those. So when you see something gross, people make the same kind of face. They, they'll curl up their nose, they'll kind of close their throat and they'll often, and then if they get really disgusted, they'll actually gag. And then if they get really disgusted, they'll vomit, right? And it's, it's all on one spectrum. And what's going on there is your body senses that you are in the presence of something toxic and dangerous. So you want to quickly expel it from all of your orifices you know you want to quickly you know breathe out exhale and maybe even gag and maybe even even vomit if you need to because something dangerous is in the air so that's why things that cause disease feces blood maggots rats right we're just we 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 are we find them disgusting not just you know not not just kind of bad but like really like disgusting which is a very specific thing now there's all this evidence that when people feel that emotion they, it comes along with, a, it, it makes people feel more xenophobic, for example. It's crazy stuff. It, it affects our psychology. Now, a long time ago, one of the main ways that people, that plague spread is coming into contact with a people that, that look different than you. You know, the, the Europeans landed on the shores of the new world. You know, these people who look different and everyone and then all the natives got sick and so many died, right? That was normal because one population is immune to a certain disease, but they're carrying it and the other one's not. So today, of course, that just doesn't, it doesn't really make nearly as much sense. But there's like, there was this Canadian study where they, they, they had two groups and one was shown kind of disturbing images like car accidents, but they weren't disgusting. And another was shown disgusting images. Like I was just talking about blood, feces, maggots, whatever. And then they were pulled about, you know, what kind of, what kind of countries do we want to accept immigrants from? 
in Canada. And the group that was shown disgusting images was much more likely to want to people who looked white, people who looked like them. And they didn't want other people coming to the country because it triggers this psychology. Now, there's not a coincidence that the Nazis, right, they called Jews, you know, they compared them to rats and vermin, right? The Hutu militia, you know, they compared the Tutsis to cockroaches. Uh, go, go, you know, and the British and I think World War II were comparing, maybe it was World War I, were comparing Germans to spiders, right? So, so these, again, poisonous bugs. These are all things that are, we are wired to feel disgust for. And when you feel disgust, you're much more likely to, it turns normal humans into psychopaths that you can, if you feel disgusted by, if you hate, you know, if you just dislike a person, you still think they're a person. If you start to feel disgusted by them, you actually will start to feel like they're subhuman and you will, you'll be okay with awful things happening to them. It kind of turns normal people into psychopaths. So what you've noticed with you know, it's hard to hate a three-dimensional person, right? Think of someone that you think right. you hate or a group of people you think you hate and actually go into their home, look at the little calendar on their wall, look at what they're cooking for their kids, hear their kids talking to them about their fears in bed at night. You can't hate them anymore. Maybe you don't like them that much, but you don't hate them. You don't want bad things to happen. They're a human, right? As soon as you remember someone's yeah. a human, all of this humanity comes up in us. So it's specifically though, the humans have this capacity to dehumanize groups of people that they don't see up close and, and forget that they're people. And that's when they can do really awful things. And so often that goes along with disgust. So if you listen to the news and you listen to the way politicians are talking about the other side, and you listen to the way people on Twitter are talking about the other side, they were disgust is used a lot. Trump uses it, like used it like thousands of hundreds of times. I was just thinking about that. Yeah, it's very common, but that word you yeah. should be, it's not just, it's different than, it's different than dislike, right? Disgust is a word that specifically goes along with the worst things that we can do. And when you see a rise in that, in our political culture, it should set off a lot of warning bells. Well, okay. Let's end on a positive note, Tim. <laughs> so uh, we're about, we've basically gotten about halfway through your book uh, in this conversation. So listeners, I implore you to read this book. I'm not, I was just telling our producers this, and I don't mean to to you know, gas you up. This is the best book I've read in a very, very long time. And you have an incredible way to write that is so unpretentious. Like the combination of your illustrations and the simplicity of your writing and the fact that if there's a plain word to use in the place of a complicated one, you use the plain word. So very accessible to anybody. I could see high school students reading this book and I hope they do. Uh, so Kudos to you, but end on a Thank positive you. note, because I know that we you kind of get there eventually in your book, and we've spent so much time on the problem, which your book is, what's our problem? But tell us the way out of this. Like when you when you really you know pump yourself up to be optimistic, where does your mind go? Yeah, I mean, go back to the '60s and the '50s, and you're going to find a lot more racial bigotry than we have right now, and then society grows. And there's less of it, a lot less of it than there used to be. And not just, you know, it's not just what people are saying out loud. I think people feel a lot less racial bigotry than they used to. Right now we have an epidemic of political bigotry, right? And it's just bigotry like any other kind. And it's acceptable to express it, which is why it's everywhere. We can wise up in the same way, right? We can, I have faith that society can improve. Uh, another area is, you know, um, we, people in the 50s and 60s ate a lot of, I don't know, they had a lot of soda and they would eat a ton of white bread and they, you know, that old food, food pyramid with like, you know, empty carbs as the main thing, you know, there was, um, we didn't know as much and we fell for a lot of things. They and, would smoke cigarettes. Exactly. Yeah. So, so you're smoking cigarettes, you, th you know, it's all these ads, 40, 50% of doctors smoke, right? And you know, all these ads, 
Um, and so people smoke cigarettes because they thought it was fine. And then what happens is people learn and they realize that this is toxic and this is bad for you. And this is, and this is something you shouldn't be having. And the number of cigarettes smoked per year plummets, you know, by 90% or some crazy number. So the, I think that we have a toxic media environment right now. I think that when you go on political Twitter and you, you know, watch Fox News, you watch MSNBC, you read Breitbart, whatever it is, you are basically having political junk food. You're having political cigarettes and uh, you're addicted to political nicotine. And, um, I think, and just in the, just as we can learn that that's bad, no one wants to hurt themselves. No one wants to be addicted to something bad. You can realize this bad. It doesn't do good things for you. It doesn't do good things for society. People can start to wise up and demand different kind of media and, and start to penalize the media that still does that by not watching it, not clicking on it. So I, I think that there's a lot of examples of society having similar, you know, McCarthyism, the Red Scare, right? It was like a time when everyone was terrified to think with it. It was a moral panic that's a little similar to, I think, of a lot of what we see now. And we uh, we came out of it. We emerged. So I think that all of this is something we can recover from, but we have to be able to talk about it. We have to wise up, you know, and faster is better than than, than slower. And and I think that, that I, I don't think that the bottleneck is people not realizing this stuff is bad. There's There's some of that, but I think mostly... It's people who don't like political bigotry, who don't like, you know, trashy entertainment news, keeping quiet about it. And, and they know, but people aren't speaking up. People at companies, you know, who are letting politics invade their company, they know, but they're scared. And so I think really what you need most of is courage right now. Just courage to stand up for what you actually think. Uh, I think that, that if people just started doing that and stop saying stuff you don't really think and start actually trying to speak up about what you think and push back against what you think is bad behavior, you know, those civic norms we talked about, stand up for those, actually exhibit those publicly. And yeah, you might get some pushback, but like if everyone started doing that, I think we could get things would move a lot faster. So that's what I'm, I'm calling for is a, just a little bit more courage. Well, Tim, bless you for this book. If there, if you ever create physical copies of this, please sign me up. I will buy many of them. It's uh, it, They're available digitally. It's called What's Our Problem? Uh, where, where's the best people? place for people to get this book uh just you know uh, amazon is uh, kindle and audible or just what's our problem uh, wait but why.com slash what's our problem is all the all the ways to buy it and our for our listeners uh, if you love this interview and want to read the book we're considering doing a, a lost debate book club first time ever we'll put a link in the show notes to this or you can just uh, send in a voicemail or email us at our email list if you want to get uh, added to that if we decide to do it, uh, because this book is so important and so central to the work that we do. And, and sometimes I think it feels lonely to do the kind of work that we do because there's, you know, I forget who it was who said, it might've been Jonah Goldberg or somebody said, there's no, you know, nuance doesn't sell, <laughs> but you know, you're a good example of somebody who's really created an audience around nuance and, and charity towards people who are different than you or people who may think different than you or have different beliefs than you. So uh, thank you, Tim, for being with us. And uh, listeners, get out there and, and get that book. Thank you, Robbie. The Lost Debate is a part of the Branch Network. The show is produced by Mickey Ayub, research support by Ariane Misra, video editing by Julia Waldman, and editing and sound design by Dean Metherell. 